you know, it's not going to be sufficient for the Biden administration to just roll back what Trump did. They actually have to repair harms that were caused, and they actually have to start to reduce the ability for future harms that these agencies have by making concrete policy um, changes and by dismantling a lot of this, this enforcement machinery that has been built up for so long. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a production from OBI. In this episode, we'll hear from Jacinta Gonzalez, an organizer with Mi Gente, a nonprofit which leads campaigns to educate and organize around issues concerning immigration, detentions, and deportations. Jacinta explains how ICE and other law enforcement agencies are using surveillance technologies to target immigrant communities and other communities of color, and gives us her take on what the new administration in Washington should do about it. This interview was conducted by Mnet and Mudum, a policy analyst here at OBI. Here was their conversation. So we're recording this a few weeks after the very messy, to say the least, ending of the Trump administration. Four years marked by an open embrace of othering to stoke fears, four years of deliberate, unpredictable terrorizing of those who are othered. And the Trump administration's cruel immigration policies were were really such a clear manifestation of this strategy. We saw children separated from their parents um, and physically detained for weeks and and months on end. Unpredictable deportation raids by ICE, that's immigration and customs enforcement, in workplaces and in the sanctity of homes. But it's important to reflect on the fact that Donald Trump didn't create ICE. As Mijente states in its policy platform on the pathway to abolishing ICE, quote, Bush created ICE, Obama expanded and sharpened its capacity for harm, and Trump has gladly unleashed this weaponized, unaccountable behemoth against our community. Today, we're going to learn a little bit more about the way that technology in particular has been unleashed to fuel this system, and what to pay attention to in this new Biden-Harris administration. So Jacinta, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you so much for having me. You know, I walked through a couple of uh, just examples here of what we've been seeing over the past four years. And then, of course, as Mijente like astutely kind of points us to is it's it's not new, but rather it's just been very intensified during the Trump administration. And, and maybe many of us can picture the impact that ICE has, has had in our cities across the country. Maybe you've seen protests and pushbacks with impacted communities with the move to abolish ICE um, and and that kind of like communication being more front and center. But this role and power of technology that we're about to get into today might be a little bit more opaque for folks. So to start us off, could you just, could you break down for us the connection between Silicon Valley and this booming tech industry you know, where we actually at OBI are situated close by in the Bay Area, and then Washington, D.C., and kind of the federal law and immigration enforcement, these two centers of power that might fe- seem far apart. Can you talk to us about how they're they're interconnected? Sure. You know, back after, after 9-11, um, you know, President Bush decided to form the Department of Homeland Security, and within that place, different policing agencies that were, you know, ICE, Border Patrol, that were tasked with identifying, surveilling, detaining, and deporting anyone who's undocumented in the U.S. And, you know, that was a huge task. And for, you know, little by little, they've been building up this police force to be able to conduct that mission. 
um, but they've also tried to find different allies in that. And so for a very long time, particularly under Obama's presidency, we saw ICE form agreements or contracts um, with local police departments, with local sheriffs, with local jails, state prisons, to try to create a huge dragnet um, you know, that would be criminalizing immigrants and then leading them to deportation. What we started to notice recently is that those partnerships, although very helpful for them, um, weren't weren't enough for them. So what they really actually started to do is work more and more with tech and data companies to build up a huge infrastructure to facilitate deportation. And so the way that this looked is that we would get calls from people saying like, how did ICE get my address? Or how did ICE know that so-and-so was my cousin? Or how did they know that this is where I worked? Or this is the car that I drove? And the, the relationships with local police, the info sharing with local police departments, whether it was through secure communities or 287G or other types of agreements, weren't enough to explain what was happening. So back in 2018, we started to do some research and put out a report called Who's Behind ICE? The Tech and Data Companies Fueling Deportations, where we started to track that there's a huge industry that has multi-million dollar contracts with the federal government to be able to help in this types of policing and surveillance. And so that includes everything from data brokers, right, that are selling, buying and selling information on people like Thomson Reuters or RELX or LexisNexis. Um, that includes data analytics companies like Palantir that are custom making software for ICE to be able to process all of this data. And that includes companies like Amazon that are providing cloud storage to be able to host, you know, and store all of this information that's being used, you know, to be able to create ISIS target lists. And so from there, we were able to analyze that actually this is a huge industry. Um, I think this is an industry that is starting to see that if they get lucrative contracts in policing, that, you know, they, that can be their, their, their business model. And so for us, it was important to one, expose them, but then start to think about, how is this really an extension of policing? How is this really an extension of police violence um, and, and state violence in, in a lot of ways against immigrants? And so there's just been a lot of conversations that have happened. And, and the more we look into it, you know, there's, there's now even more companies that are trying to do biometric tracking, right? Taking people's DNA, people's voice prints. Um, we see that there's a huge industry at the border, right? We've seen with this new administration, they're saying we're not going to build a brick and mortar wall the way Trump wanted to, but we're actually going to create a tech and surveillance wall. And so again, this is just a phenomenon that we're seeing over and over again in, in immigration enforcement, and something that's really concerning and alarming to us. Absolutely, and kind of the language may change, right? Of like, we're not physically building anything, but a lot of it is uh, technological and, and harder to, to kind of track. And so that's one thing that really sp speaks to me from what you're sharing and also from reading that that report that you mentioned, the who's behind ICE. Um, I think y'all make it really clear that some of these choices that seem, that could seem small or like more mundane of, you know, some of the words that popped out were like, interoperability or modernization of systems. Um, some of that can can seem like it's just an update or it's just, you know, this is just to be more efficient. So it's really clear from what you all um, have put out that there's, there's very specific harms of those stories of, you know, I have no idea how I'm being tracked from all these different sides. 
Um, and then the clear financial benefits for those powerful companies, like you were saying, that they can just, um, these contracts are, are super lucrative and, and last for a long time. Um, so I'd love, love to get into kind of how you all have been organizing against what you just laid out. So what are those, what are the intervention points that you want to call us to for calling out and rolling back these harms? What, what should we be paying attention to, um, whether it's during or outside of election cycles? You know, I think we, we've really realized that this, this is an issue that's going to require all hands on deck. Right. This is why we build movements where folks can have different ways of participating, different ways of contributing, because unfortunately, there isn't one silver bullet that's going to be able to take it all down. We actually all have to do our part in terms of, of how we, we change this conversation and try to push back against uh, surveillance as as and push back against the expansion of, of policing into the digital realm. Um you know, we've been doing a lot of organizing, you know, under Trump, it was very hard to think about trying to, you know, push the federal government to take any sort of different action, right? Um, and so that really made us realize that also some of these corporate targets um, also require organizing to hold them accountable. And so for us, that meant, you know, one, exposing what was happening, being able to actually like tell a clear story and a clear narrative of what was happening. And that's why the research has been so important to actually be able to show people what is behind the Department of Homeland Security's very closed doors um, to really understand what it is that they're building. Because so many times for us as organizers, we have a very hard task where we have to, you know, tear down what has been built up for centuries, but also understand where, where the state and where corporations are going in terms of new forms of control. Um, or, you know, continuation of, of the same systems. And so for us, it was really important to sort of understand, again, how ICE was building up the surveillance machinery that for right now is being used for deportations, but we saw very clearly under Trump can be used in, against other communities as well, right? Um, as soon as they have it, they will use it. Um, and so for us, that meant doing a lot of organizing in different spaces. Some of that was with folks that are, you know, directly being targeted by ICE, folks that are undocumented, folks that are, you know, been on the front lines in their communities fighting back against uh, deportations, fighting back against ICE policing, um, and giving them tools to either, one, understand what uh, surveillance capitalism is about, understand how the police, local police use technology, how ICE and federal agencies use it, but also how we build campaigns to expose things at a city level and be able to make interventions to ban certain technologies so that they're not used against our communities. That also meant, you know, working with students. So many of these companies that I mentioned have contracts with universities to go to different places to recruit students. These are future tech workers um, who might not know what it is that they're building, might not know what it is that they're coding. And so for us, it was really important to have a vibrant student movement that was actually also pushing back. Um, and we worked with a lot of student groups, including SLAP um, in, in California, which has been doing really phenomenal work, um, and organized a bunch of different petitions, protests on campuses against recruitment, trying to cancel contracts between universities and these, these companies for recruitment purposes. Um, so that was also really powerful in a strategy that we tried. We also, you know, actually worked with investors. Again, so many of these private corporations are making millions 
But, you know, the same way that now investors understand that they shouldn't put their money into fossil fuel or shouldn't put their money into tobacco or weapons, we need to be able to, to create a different conversation so that investors aren't fueling um, surveillance and tech companies that are actually harming communities and aiding state violence. Um, so for us, it's been really powerful to create a movement that includes folks from all of these communities, right? Whether it's it's a local community on the front lines or students that are supporting academics as well, tech workers, right? We've also seen within many tech companies, workers are starting to organize and push back and develop analysis. I think there's a lot more work to be done on this front, but there is a lot of hope in terms of seeing people start to have some analysis of, I don't want to participate in this type of business model and push back against it. And that's also been really, really effective and, and powerful work. So for us, it's been about creating a space where all of these people can come together. You know, um, before the pandemic struck, we had a conference in San Jose called Take Back Tech, where we precisely brought together people who have been fighting against policing, right? And the use of, of for example, facial recognition in policing, predictive policing, um, algorithms in the, the, the fight against cash bail, um, bringing together folks that are against militarization and have been fighting against war, folks from the immigrant rights space, folks from the tech worker space, together to have one conversation about how we, how we organize campaigns that are grassroots campaigns that can fight back not only to get different policies, but to also push back against the corporations that are driving these things. Wow, it really is all hands on deck from hearing you go through through all those examples. And um, yeah, I think zeroing in on the power that these tech companies have, as you were kind of talking through the grassroots local organizing and, and pushing against um, like sheriffs. I'm, I'm from Gwinnett County, which is in in Georgia, which had all eyes on us <laughs> very recently for the, the national election, but um, through a lot of Mijente's work, also um, ousted like a local sheriff that was really big on using the 287G program. And now, you know, different Amazon data centers are coming to Georgia. So I'm just hearing all these different connections between, um, yeah, between all these systems and, and kind of types of power that can exist in in, in our states and in our cities. And yeah, I really appreciate hearing all the different angles of how you all fight against, fight against that. Um, I want to switch to something that you brought up towards the beginning around the history of the Department of Homeland Security, um, how they've been building up this police force. And you mentioned it just now at, at this Take Back Tech conference that y'all put together, that there was a, you know, kind of thinking through folks that have been anti-war, pushing against war, um, investments for for a long time, um, and you've made that clear connection through No Tech for ICE as well that the military industrial complex and tech companies are are really connected. And I would be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that specifically the the way that this technology is used for for war both at home and abroad. How is this really lucrative model that you all are exposing? How do you connect it to that American concept of policing more generally? Yeah, I mean, what, what we have seen is that many of the, the tech and data companies that are starting to invest in policing were already investing in, you know, war technologies for a very long time. And so that meant that you have companies that have already understood, ooh, this is, this is a multi-million or billion dollar contract that I can get 
for technology that can be used in wars abroad that are then very quickly brought to the U.S., one, through a militarized border. So we have to understand that, you know, the, the conversation around, you know, securing the border and having to use both military-grade equipment but also surveillance equipment has been incredibly harmful um, and has normalized a lot of technologies um, before there's any sort of framework for regulation, right? And not that these technologies should be regulated, but what we have seen is that there's actually no framework to protect people's human rights um, and no you know, tools to build power to be able to, to, to fight back against them without the organizing that we're doing. And so that's just very alarming. And what happens is you know, agencies like ICE are really now international surveillance agencies. They are not just meant to be able to surveil people in the U.S., but surveil people abroad. And they use that excuse to be able to get even more powerful technologies and to have less checks on how they're being used. But what we've seen time and time again is that once these technologies become used by, by, by these uh, agencies, they very quickly get out to the rest of the American policing systems, right? Um, sometimes the Department of Justice will send them out, or sometimes as police departments will start to use them themselves. Um, and it's just very concerning to sort of see that happen at such a scale. Um, and we've also seen it come up time and time again in the movements to defund the police, because what we've seen is that, you know, so many times what, what cities will try to say is, oh, well, we have to invest in a gentler form of policing. Or, you know, if they have issues with racial disparities, oh, well, let's use an algorithm that will solve it. But actually what we see is these technologies are exasperating those problems and making things worse while at the same time lining the pockets of folks in Silicon Valley. And so instead of aiding this, this process of being able to rely less on policing and invest more in communities, what they're actually doing is reinforcing a system of needing to watch people who are deemed as, as criminals, which we know are, are black and brown communities, are immigrant communities, are poor communities. And so for us, it's just been important to be able to, to push back, um, you know, not only on, on when it's being used in a war zone, but also when it's being used in our backyards. Um, and so it's, it's really having to understand the, the complexities of how all of these things are connected. And I also think that the other problem that we're not quite realizing is, as you know, federal agencies are trying to build up the surveillance dragnet, the use of data brokers really makes it so that any information can get sucked up into the system. So someone, you know, we were, for example, talking about license plate readers in the state of California, right? California has a bunch of different laws that are trying to create sanctuary for, for immigrants or some sort of protection for, for undocumented communities. But many times data brokers will buy data that's not supposed to be used for, for immigration purposes and then but sell it and sell it and sell it and somehow it gets into the hands of ICE to be used for, for deportation. And so we also see that as more data is being collected on people, that means that there's more chances of that being sucked into this dragnet and being used for policing and for, for repression. And so it's just a very concerning system that's being set up, um, you know, and, th and that's why we really have to expose it and create more awareness around this so that people have the tools to be able to fight for, for, for data justice. Because the way that the frames that we're using right now are, are insufficient, it's not a question of just being able to keep your information private, it's actually being able to fight back against the state and fight back against the policing systems that are trying to, to you know, that are targeting people in the first place. Thank you for, for raising that, that example. And 
this concept of a dragnet of just an ever-ending source uh, of technology or sorry rather of, of data through all the technology that we use and I wonder if maybe you could share examples of kind of what what are the kind of the sources that they're using and, and this can tie into another question that I have around how is this actually showing up in, in people's lives like you've you've mentioned at the top kind of thinking that or hearing from community um you know how did just how did they know how did they get this information and that was part of part of what you all were doing was hearing from from those most impacted and and hearing their stories um but could you make that a little more tangible for us what are what are they using in terms of data sources how is this showing up in people's lives and and of course then i we want to think about like the how a lot of this stress and and this um the the impact of surveillance shows up in the body like shows up in mental health shows up in you know just your ability to 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 live your life um so yeah could you speak a little on that sure i mean what we've seen at this point data is worth more than oil at the global at the global marketplace right and so most people think that all of this data is being bought and sold just because you know, Amazon wants to know what your profile is to sell you the the right kind of blender you like, or, you know, the, the they want to know your shoe size so they can advertise that for you. But what we start to realize is that it's not only companies and advertisers that are interested in our personal information, it's also the state, it's also the government, it's also the police. And again, as more data sources are being created, there are more companies that are creating the data analytics programs to be able to sort of, you know, file everything in one place and be able to, to hand it over to the authorities so that they can use it. And what we've been seeing steadily is that ICE has been conducting more and more raids in neighborhoods and in communities. And many times they'll go door to door knowing exactly who they're looking for. And so many times these data brokers or these data sources are, are what they use to find people's addresses to be able to conduct this type of enforcement operation. So, you know, some folks have, have seen different documentaries like Immigration Nation and others where ICE is going door to door. How they get that data many times has to do with data brokers. Um, and where data brokers get that information is really everywhere. So what we've seen is, for example, some utility companies are sharing information. Um, you know, they're saying to build up people's credit, but actually it's also like, again, ending up in the hands of ICE. And so that means that, that communities are having to constantly deal with, well, should I have cable or not? Because that information could end up in the hands of a data broker and go and end up in the hands of ICE. Office of Motor Vehicles, right? So many times have contracts with, with data brokers themselves to provide other services. Um, and that's another place where information is being leaked. Healthcare bills, right? You know, how many times have people heard of like, oh, they bought my debt and they're calling me to charge me for it. That information can also be bought by ICE. And so this is really the, the place where there's so much concern because that means that communities have to make these really hard decisions between having basic services and knowing that in their information could be leaked to an agency that, you know, is literally tasked with surveilling, detaining, and deporting them. Um, and that's really how it comes up in, in people's day-to-day -day lives. You know, I think so much of, of the thing that is scary about surveillance is that we can't see it. We don't always know that it's there. But I think that communities have really, especially immigrant communities under the Trump administration, were very clear 
that, you know, a racist, xenophobic agenda put a target on their back and that, you know, any sort of movement could be monitored and could lead to this type of, of repression. I think that's why for us it's so important, you know, under this new administration to be saying this is the time we actually have to dismantle these agencies. This is where we have to, you know, stop deportations. This is where we have to reduce the number of agents that are there. You know, this is when we actually have to cut these programs like 287G that you were mentioning in in Georgia, detainer programs. There's there's so many policy demands that can be made at this moment. Time where we actually have to reduce that that harm, because what we see is that if we don't stop it, it's going to continue to build and it's going to continue to be attacking communities. And so, yeah, it just requires immediate action. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also wondering if you could speak a little on uh, kind of how how are you seeing the pandemic impact? Because you know, so much is moving online, right? And I was hearing you go through the examples of, of these, the, where they're getting this data. I get, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Where, how is the, the way that the pandemic is, is pushing so much online? How is that, or is it impacting or, or further fueling um, what ICE and these data brokers and all the different kind of parts of the system, is it impacting or increasing their ability to, to further surveil? You know, what we've seen is a couple of scary trends. I would say, yes, definitely there is more. As folks are going online, you start to see surveillance impact, you know, different elements of people's lives. So, for example, you know, so many of our kids or young people are doing their education online. That's leading to different types of surveillance and and an invasion of, of people's homes and privacy in a way that is actually contributing more to the criminalization of of you know, communities of color that have already had to, to go through so much and, and don't have access to education in the same way. But we've also seen a lot of really concerning things in terms of some of the corporations that are involved in this. I mentioned at the beginning a company, Palantir, that is custom building ISIS software for them. Um, you know, this same company also got a contract with, the, with Health and Human Services for the HHS Protect platform to be able to monitor COVID. How concerning is that? Incredibly concerning, right? They're in up data systems for the entire government. And that was a no-bid contract, right, that they got as part of the, the first COVID relief bill. So we're starting to see that many of these companies that were already building data analytics systems for the government are using those same systems once again to try to expand that even more. Um, and, you know, we're just concerned about them having access to so much personal identifying information um, and not having clear regulations around how that's being used or anyone monitoring them or, con- or holding them accountable for that type of work. Um, so what we've seen is that, again, like there's more of an emphasis on surveillance. There's more of a conversation around control. And then more people like you're saying are, are, are going online. And that's leaving a bigger um, digital footprint without having any sort of protections around how that data is being bought and sold. Yeah, I'm appreciating this kind of theme of how how quickly the the tools of the system are changing, and you know we're we're seeing that a lot of this a lot of similar outcomes with or without technology. But as the tools change so rapidly, whether it's with uh, new technologies or just you know, with the amount of data with, with all of us going online in, in different ways. Um, I'm really glad that y'all, y'all are doing this work because it does, it seems like it's moving so fast. So it really, 
I think further emphasizes your point that it's like this is an all hands on deck situation because what they use for you know immigration enforcement today can show up in other ways tomorrow. So I, I want to kind of switch gears to what you were alluding to a couple of minutes ago around, you know, y'all have been doing this work with uh, at the local level, state level, like very much a grassroots all hands on deck approach. And I'm sure that's not slowing down anytime soon, but also that there is this transition at the federal level where um, there might be some windows of opportunity. So we've already seen, seen them put out some of those big announcements. I'll kind of talk through a couple and then turn it to you to tell us what we should be kind of paying attention to. But we saw announcements on, you know, immigration in the carceral system, a couple on a couple that I'll point out is the halting of deportations um, for 100 days, ending federal contracts with private prisons. But of course, very immediately, we saw caveats and saw kind of things to to show us that we don't need to have our guard down by any means, that ICE isn't fully complying with those orders to halt deportations. And the push to cancel those contracts doesn't include like private detention centers that are used to imprison migrants um, during pending trials or whatever it might be. And I wanted to also raise a, a more recent and glaring example of the, the deportation of a woman who had witnessed the anti-immigrant white supremacist mass shooting in, in El Paso. Perhaps she had even, you know, potentially was at risk herself, I'm sure. And I think her story holds like so much of the moment that we're in right after the insurrection of what happened at, at the Capitol and the different attacks that have happened like in El Paso, Charleston, um, Charlottesville, you name it, where this right-wing violence and rhetoric is rising with, with so little accountability. And then we're still seeing the people that are most vulnerable continue to be under attack and continue to be um, vulnerable. So see, hearing that she was deported and uh, really is, is sticking with me. So I'm, I would love to hear kind of what are you focusing on as we look at this new administration? What are you looking at in terms of those those openings, those those policy windows for change? And and also help us kind of look past the headlines, which I think will be kind of a, a big thing for this administration. I would say a few things. You know, the the moratorium on deportations was a pretty huge win. And it's, it's a huge win in the sense that it, it didn't come from the Biden administration on its own. It really came after years and years of struggle of communities on the ground who are saying, not one more deportation, who are saying, you know, we have to stop these deportations. If you won't, we will with our bodies, with our families, um, with everything we have. You know, the, the, the idea that we could actually win a federal moratorium on deportations came from, from a lot of people doing a lot of work to fight and to push back. Um, and so it was a really welcomed, you know, sigh of relief for a lot of communities. I think what we've seen since is that, you know, even though we might have gotten Trump out of the White House, which was also a, a, a huge accomplishment and thanks to the, the tireless work of so many people who participated in, in the, the election, you know, we haven't gotten rid of white supremacy in, in the United States. And so it, you know, continues to be present in the courts. Um, it continues to be present in the state, as we see the state of Texas uh, suing to, to fight back against the moratorium. It continues to be present in the rank and file ICE agents 
who are refusing to follow these orders and who are still, you know, trying to do everything they can, whether it's on, on their own or through their union, to try to be able to continue to deport as many people as they can and create harm in communities the way that they have for so long. And so I think it still remains to be seen if this new administration is going to be willing to actually step up to be able to, one, bring some accountability to the agency, and two, be able to actually start to dismantle and overhaul the policies and protocols and practices and infrastructure that's been built up to surveil, detain, and deport immigrants um, in the United States, um, and honestly, abroad as well. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done on that front. You know, in the moratorium, there was 100 days where they're supposed to be doing an internal review. Um, and I think that for us is a chance to continue to organize, to say, okay, great, moratorium was a good first step, but now we need you to end the 287G program. Now we need you to phase out immigration detention in general, right? Not only close down private detention centers, but no one should be detained for, for an immigration offense. Now is the time to, to be able to make all of these demands around what we can, you know, where we should actually be investing our resources, which is not in, in federal policing for immigration. And so, you know, I think we have a lot of a lot of work to do. Um, I think there's places where we've been able to, to push a little bit more. But I, I also think that it's going to be very concerning, and we've already started to see it, that this administration is trying to say that technology would be a safer, uh, gentler alternative to kind of the, the, the policing the, that we've seen so far. And that's really dangerous rhetoric, right? And so I think we're going to have to continue to push back against this idea of needing to have surveillance at the border in exchange for a path to citizenship. Um, I think we're going to have to be pushing back against the use of, for example, electronic shackles or electronic monitoring as an alternative to detention. Um, what we've seen is it's actually just an expansion of that. It's something that's equally punitive and unnecessary um, and also contributing to the privatization of incarceration and, and punishment practices. So I think we, you know, again, there's there's a lot of work that we have to do, but I do think that it's that, that it's important to note that the moratorium wouldn't have happened had it not been for communities that were fighting back. And so if we expect this administration to do anything on their own, you know, we're, we're not going to get very far. So it, this is also sort of a call to action for all of our listeners out there that we have to continue to push for more. You know, it's not going to be sufficient for the Biden administration to just roll back what Trump did. They actually have to... Um, repair harms that were caused, and they actually have to start to reduce the ability for future harms that these agencies have by making concrete policy um, changes and by dismantling a lot of this this enforcement machinery that has been built up for so long. Absolutely. And I think you made a really excellent point that, you know, right now we're, we're definitely having to play defense and, and, and uh, divesting from certain systems and certain technologies and tools. And I think you know, this is across um, the spectrum of, of, of the abolition movement that when we divest from those tools, imagine what we can instead invest in. And I, you made that point, and I think it's really important to end on of like, there's, there's, there's so much more that we could be doing to, you know, better be in social solidarity, better support, you know, immigrant workers, um, undocumented workers, and just families and people and, you know, regardless of, of what you do for your day-to-day -day job, um, 
but anyway, that there's so much that we could be instead putting our energy and time and money and, um, and attention towards once we get rid of, you know, some of these further dismantle these systems that really shouldn't have been in place in the first place. So I really appreciate, um, you sharing that and, and making these points. Um, and like you said, yeah, this is a, it's a call to action by no means a, a, a reason to slow down. So I'll end on that point. Like, do you have any, any recommendations, any kind of campaigns or whether it's reading or, you know, whatever it is to fuel our audience to understand um, more of what you all are working on or, or other campaigners that you're with? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think we, we have to remember and recognize that the Department of Homeland Security is the biggest police force in the country. And so as we're talking about not only the need to abolish ICE, but also defund the police, that these fights are, are one and the same. It's part of the same conversation about how we actually reimagine where we're putting our resources and how we're investing in communities. Um, you know, I think for folks that want to learn more, there we have our Free Our Future policy platform, which we put out a couple of years ago, but I think is still incredibly relevant and talks about how we should be decriminalizing migration, you know, having new visions for these agencies um, and kind of giving us a pathway of, of how we continue to fight. I also think if folks are interested in, in some of the resources around the No Tech for ICE campaign, you can go to notechforice.com and we have a bunch of resources there, whether it's, you know, a toolkit for local cities um, to think about, you know, exposing te uh, bad tech in their police departments and think about different resolutions or ordinances that can be passed. There's, you know, a toolkit um, and a, a workshop guide and a comic strip to kind of explain some of these concepts to folks. I know sometimes they feel really hard to explain or really hard to illustrate. And so we worked with a really amazing artist um, who helped us create this, this entire uh, toolkit that include, that's in both English and Spanish and a couple of workshop guides for people to use. Um, we have a bunch of like videos and graphics and uh, different reports that are out there. So there's just a lot of resources that I would really encourage people to check out at notechforice.com. Um, and then just follow me, gente. You know, we we identify ourselves as a political home for Latin and Chicane folks that are fighting back against a bunch of different issues. Um, so it's it's if there's anybody who's listening, who's Chicanex, who's Latinx, um, become a member, get involved. Uh, you know, there's so many things that can do that we can do. Sometimes it's around immigration issues. Sometimes it's around policing. Sometimes around the elections, Puerto Rico, women's rights. Like there is just so many places and, and fronts of struggle that we have. So it's just more of an open invitation to to get involved and, and be connected to movement um, in whatever way we can, because this, this is really going to take all of us to have a different conversation and to be able to contend for power in all of the spaces that we have to. And that concludes this episode of Who Belongs. Thank you to our guest, Jacinta Gonzalez, an organizer of the Gente, for coming on our show. And Emnet Lomuda, my policy analyst here at OBI, for conducting the interview. We'll put links to Mijente's work on our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. There you can also find a transcript of this interview. Thank you for listening. <laughs>